Welcome, everyone, to Historia, a podcast dedicated to the study of history and culture. I am your host, David Williams. Let's get started. I am here today with Dr. Edward Watts, Professor of History and Chair of the History Department at the University of California, San Diego. He is the author of five books, the most recent of which is the wonderful book, Mortal Republic. Now, it's not a new book. It came out about two years ago, I believe. I thoroughly enjoyed the book and really wanted to have Edward on this podcast to talk about his uh his work. I'm going to kind of just kick it to you to start off with, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, why you're interested in the topic, what your book's about. Sure. Well, thanks, David. I'm really glad to be here. And I'm, I'm really glad we were able to, to make this work out despite hurricanes and fires and all of the other <laughs> apocalyptic things happening in the world right now. 2020. <laughs> Made and soon. Uh, um, yeah, so the the book was um, something that grew out really of something that I've noticed in my teaching. So I, I'm a Roman and Byzantine historian. And in my teaching, I, I really work with undergraduates on everything from the foundation of the city of Rome in the 8th century BC through, um, I mean, sometimes I work into the 20th century, but a lot of times my teaching goes through 1453 and the fall of Constantinople. And this is always something that's appealed to students. Um, we never have trouble getting students to take classes in Roman history or Byzantine history. But when I started teaching more than 20 years ago, the interest was really in the empire uh, and the fall of the Roman Empire uh, and a lot of questions, particularly in the lead up to the Iraq War about, well, what does the fall of the Roman Empire mean for us now? But starting in, say, the middle of the 2010s, maybe, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, students really sort of shifted from thinking about the United States' contemporary reality in terms of the Roman Empire. And they started talking about it and thinking about it um, in terms of the Roman Republic and what was happening with the Roman Republic. And I was noticing that the discussions in my classes became more and more focused on what is going on in a republic that makes it succeed and what kinds of challenges do republics really struggle to address. Uh, and so this is what prompted me to start working on this book. Um, it, it was clear that you know, the students are in a sense the leading edge of what the future will become. And the things they're concerned about reflect this vision or this attempt to understand what their possible realities might look like as they get older. And so the fact that students were gravitating towards these really fundamental questions about the Republic suggested that this is something we need to think seriously about and we need to talk seriously about. Um, if we can understand the Roman Republic and understand what happened to it and understand why in the end Romans chose to not be a free society anymore, but instead to embrace an autocracy, uh, that can tell us a lot about some of the basic conditions that make humans and make people decide to give up the freedoms that their ancestors and maybe even they have fought really hard to maintain. And so the, the book was uh, and is an attempt to look at Roman history and think about what it is that took Rome's Republic from something that was functional, successful, resilient, uh, powerful, and very, very capable of building social consensus uh, to a state that broke down in all of those ways, um, where consensus was something that was first difficult to reach and then ultimately not reachable at all. 
Um, and where a republic that used to be based on laws, discussion, and recognized um, processes for making decisions became something that was governed by the use of force. Uh, and that to me felt like a really fundamental story to tell again um, with an awareness of both what we now know about Rome's Republic uh, and also an awareness of what the world around us now looks like so that we might be more attentive to some of the questions and some of the assumptions that we kind of take for granted in our world. Yeah, I, I was uh, very interested when I first started the book because most discussions of the fall of the Roman Empire um, in the Roman Republic, um, almost inevitably start with the uh, the Gracchi brothers, as if they they sprang, these radicals sprang from nowhere and suddenly wanted to change everything, and the reactionaries didn't like it, and that led to all sorts of violence, and that was the catalyst to set everything down. And you really take it back farther than that. You take it back to almost to the beginning of what we would call history more than legend i mean yeah like most societies rome was rome has both and uh, you really took it back and I, what i found fascinating was your discussion of how character and a person's personal character his his virtue his uh you know um that was the most important thing the honor of the roman uh of the roman was the was more valuable than gold or anything else. Like, no, you can't bribe me because you can't buy my honor. Yeah, I I wanted to start kind of exactly as you said at that border between history and, and legend. Um, and there is an event in the, the 270s with um, the invasion of Pyrrhus of Epirus um, where you have a Roman Republic that has just become the dominant state in Italy. And this is their first encounter with a real kind of, I mean, to use a modern concept, like a first world army. Um, this is a guy who for a little while um, laid claim to the Macedonian throne that Alexander the Great had held less than half a century before. So this is a real significant force. And they have elephants, um, which no one in Italy had ever seen before. Uh, and the Romans um, have a real choice to make about how you address this situation. Uh, and they don't address the defeats. Pyrrhus initially beats the Romans, um, but the Romans fight hard. Uh, they're terrified by the elephants, but they figure out more or less how to kind of hold their own with uh, a force that has elephants. And what Pyrrhus then realizes is this really isn't a war he wants to continue to fight. And so he tries to effectively find a way to bribe some of the leading Roman politicians so that they can make a peace treaty that allows him to leave and save some face. And the answer we get, and this answer, I think, sits right on that border of, of myth and history or legend and history, uh, is that the Romans were unbribable because they valued honor more than they valued wealth. And I think that's true. I think that that is exactly what would have happened. And I think that makes a lot of sense that Romans would have behaved that way. Um, and so I think the reality of that event is, is probably there. Um, but I think the way it's told is also legendary. And, and so you're at this moment where you can see the Republic working. Um, you can see what this system is all about. You can see why Romans would prize consensus, why they would do what's asked of them to make their state succeed. Um, but you can also see how Romans want you to see them behaving that right. way. Uh, and as you get through the third century, you see the state actually behaving that way as the, the sort of stories and the legends 
slip away, Rome still behaves this way. Um, and the biggest example of this is the Second Punic War with Hannibal, where um, Rome basically should have surrendered. They probably should have collapsed. Uh, and what the Romans do instead is make very conscious decisions to come together as a society and absorb whatever consequences come out of this, meaning food shortages, um, people giving up their jewelry to build fleets, um, an economic disruption, uh, large scale losses, um, something like you know, three years, they lose 35% of the military aged men in the entire Republic. Um, they lose in those three years, more men than the United States has lost in battle since world war two. Mm. Um, then that's a population that's one 80th, the size of the American population. And they double down and they actually militarize in a way that, that no one, no society in antiquity that was that size was ever willing to do. Um, and so the Republic worked uh, and the question then becomes, you know, that's your starting point, right? The system that is right. functional, it's successful, it's doing what it's supposed to do. How then do we get to the Rocky? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I found it, I mean, one of the things I found fascinating with about the Romans was always that Romans were not invincible. You always get this idea from, you know, movie history, like the Roman army marches in and just kind of, you know, like Genghis Khan wipes everything and before them. It's like, it wasn't so much like that. The Romans, I swear, it seems like the Romans lost more battles than they fought. But it's like the Romans lose an army. And they go, well, damn, we'll build another one. Um, you know, they lose, a, they lose an entire fleet in the, in the Mediterranean. Okay, guys, need to build another ship. Got to learn more people how to learn how to, how to be sailors. Uh, and, but also, the, once again, that, that part about the sacrifice, and I guess in our own society that's become so self-centered if you will uh where it's about bragging that you're a wealthiest person in the world or a billionaire on tv whether you are or not um the you have romans who are giving up their own wealth to help make fleets happen i mean it almost is, it'd be i mean I, I guess the equivalent would have been you know the rockefeller saying no that's okay that's okay uh mr roosevelt we'll we'll build we'll build a couple of ships ourselves yeah, I, and I think this is, um, I mean, I know we're, we're talking about the Republic, but it's interesting to compare the Republic with the Empire, because in the Empire, you did have that invincible army. Mm -hmm. um, you right. had the best soldiers, certainly in the region and maybe in the world, and they're professional soldiers, and they serve, you know, for decades. Uh, and so what you see in the Empire is when those armies get wiped out, there are real problems, and it doesn't happen very often. But when it happens in the 250s, um, they struggle. When it happens in 378, they struggle um, because there's a level of expertise that that army possesses that you can't just bring back. Mm -hmm. But in the Republic, it's different. In the Republic, these are not super, <laughs> these are not super armies. Right. Um, and you actually see that moment of transition when Caesar's legions come down uh, to invade Italy following right. his rebellion. And those legions are professional armies. And we see um, with the last phase in the Republic, there's a, a battle between Mark Antony and um, an army or a set of troops uh, that were raised as draftees by the Senate. And Antony is just cutting those troops up because he has relatively well-trained, somewhat veteran soldiers. And then Augustus, future Emperor Augustus, shows up with one of Caesar's legions, and it is like a knife through butter. Um, and that's kind of where you see the difference. Uh, the Republic could throw huge amounts of resources at problems. They could 
raise armies again and again and again because they had this social consensus where people knew that was their obligation. And in the empire, you had better armies, right. um, but you didn't have this capacity to just draw on this immense set of willing people who are eager to contribute to the state in that fashion. Um, and I think it's important to understand what's lost when that goes away. Um, that was, in a sense, the deal that the autocracy made, is we're not going to ask much of you, <laughs> um, whereas the republic asked quite a bit of you. Right. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things and um, that I did notice, uh, maybe better talk about it towards the end, but yeah. the, the, the change, I guess what, growing up, I mean, I'm 46 years old, so we're probably a close to the same age i'm 45 so there yeah, you go we're... yeah so i mean growing up i mean the 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 tyranny of the world was the soviet union this communist thing and i mean it we you know we're historians it was pretty awful i mean yeah you know but people always think of tyranny as hitler or stalin and i always say no those aren't the you know those are the 1984 type tyrannies but mm -hmm. augustus rome was different Generally, as long as you behaved yourself and you know paid your taxes, you didn't cause any trouble, you could live a pretty prosperous, decent life. I mean, you know, I won't say too healthful. I mean, it was pretty, you know, parasitic. Parasites were, you know, reigned supreme <laughs> in the ancient world. But uh, I mean, you know, it was relatively healthful compared to other places. Um, now, granted, if you you know, say something nasty about Caesar, you might end up, uh, you know, getting torn to pieces by wild animals. But as long as you behaved yourself, there wasn't that that same kind of oppressive, every aspect of your life belongs to the state. It was um, a more benevolent in some ways, but also almost more insidious tyranny because you gave up all of your, all of your rights, I guess, or liberties yeah. And um, but the state was like, it's OK. It's OK, sweetie. We'll just pat you on the head and you can be a as long as you're a good little boy, you can still play. Yeah, I think this is the thing that's so challenging about Augustus. Um, the first part of Augustus's life, he's on that level of, of Hitler and Stalin. Mm -hmm. You know, he oh, yeah. is I mean, he's a he's a he kills huge numbers of people. Mm -hmm. He kills innocent people because he needs their property. Right. He takes 18 towns and takes all of the land and all of the property in those towns and gives them to his soldiers. Um, he's brutal and he's terrible and he's terrifying. And it's very rare where somebody like that has a second act where they're mm -hmm. constructive. Right. Um, I mean, he is he's intensely uh, and incredibly vicious uh, during that first phase of his life. And so the idea that he could build something uh, like what the empire became, which was, as you said, I mean, it's a, it's a tyranny, but very few people are actually killed once that's established. Lots of people are killed and lots of things are destroyed to establish the tyranny. But Augustus understood how to build something that was sustainable and based really on this um, presumption that you don't challenge him. But you don't necessarily need to be afraid of him if you're not going to challenge him. And there's something about that that is impossible for a historian to do justice to. Right. It's... Um, you can't make him an ideal figure because he's not. Um, but at the same time, he's one of the most effective uh, and constructive figures in history as well. And it's really hard to do justice to the positive stuff. You know, if you, if you were born in 27, this is someone who has overwhelmingly positive things that he's mm -hmm. done for you. Um, if you were born in 57, 
No, <laughs> right. He's he's a, the worst of the worst that Rome has ever shown you. Uh, and how is a, how a historian can do justice to a person like that? Um, I mean, it's a task bigger than anything I've figured out, and I struggled with that um, because mm-hmm. Augustus, the civil warrior, is among the worst people in Roman history. And Augustus, the emperor, is one of, you know, the people who did some of the most positive things in sort of stabilizing and creating a peaceful structure that Rome right. ever saw. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, both, both uh, Augustus and Julius Caesar are just so odd. I, I, one of the things I loved about the uh, TV series Rome, mm-hmm. um, I mean, yes, there are a lot of historical anomalies, but I feel like you get kind of the feel of maybe what Rome was like if nothing else. But uh, one of the things I loved was how in the middle, you're never quite sure who Julius Caesar is. <laughs> is he the, is he the manipulative, you know, to use a, a pop culture reference, Emperor Palpatine creating all these situations so that he can take over and become the emperor? Or is he a guy who really believes in the empire and loves it? And well, no, he's not that, but I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> but, but you know, like his image that he gives of, I'm just trying to do what's best for Rome and they forced me into this. And the truth lies somewhere in between what. Cato thought about him and what he thought about himself, but it's almost like, I guess the, the figure that I think about the most about in our own history would be Thomas Jefferson. Like, mm. who is this man? You know, it's like, was he, was he Caesar the monster? Was he Caesar the savior? Was he somewhere in between? Where, where, how much of his own BS did he believe? <laughs> I think the thing with Caesar that is really striking to me um, is deep down, I think there was one set of principles that he did firmly and, and fully and completely believe in, and he didn't sort of sh- he didn't shrink back from them. Uh, and this was the idea that the state should not it had no right to put people to death for no reason. It had no right to take people's property for no reason. Um, and this is something you see consistently throughout his career. I mean, he when he's very young, his family property is taken by the dictator Sulla. Uh, and this, I think, set for him a very clear idea of what is appropriate for the state to do and what it shouldn't do. And so in 63, when there's this giant panic because there's a, a threatened, well, a revolt going on um, by a man named Catiline, there's a, a panic in the Senate where they arrest some people who are working with this conspiracy and they want to put them to death immediately. And Cicero is the consul and Cicero, if you read his writings, Cicero says explicitly and many, many times, the basic principle of a Republic is that there should not be violence in how this is governed. There is rule of law and rule of law needs to dominate everything. But occasionally when Cicero kind of got wrapped up in the moment, Cicero stepped back from that. Uh, And then 63 is one of those moments. Um, And, Caesar never did. And when the Senate was debating this, Caesar actually said, you cannot, you cannot set this precedent because these are terrible people. But if you do this, you have taken away the legal protections that people enjoy. And that's a place we can't go. Uh, and when Caesar is dictator, he also maintains this to his, you know, <laughs> I mean, it leads to his death. Right. The fact that he is willing to pardon people, he's willing to reintegrate people, he does not want to take life and take property unless the person is absolutely um, going to oppose him to their death. And then he will. But if 
someone is willing to accept clemency, Caesar does not want them killed. Uh, and so I think with Caesar, like the one thing that you can say is there is one principle that is there for, our, for his entire career, and it's a principle that leads to his death. Uh, and so I think that that always has to be part of the story we tell about Caesar. Um, he is very shifty. Uh, he is very interested in pursuing his own objectives. He is very interested in enhancing his own prestige and his own power. But there is at least one principle that we can look at and say, yeah, that's, that's solid, that's consistent, and that's really a good thing. Right. Um, well, um, and I think we always need to have that in the mix because Augustus learned from that and Augustus did not believe that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you have somebody who yeah. you think is an opponent and you can kill them and it's a time when you are insecure, you kill them. And Augustus mm -hmm. learned that from Caesar's, yes. in a sense, principled stand. It's, I think it's interesting to put those two together um, and to see that with Augustus, there is a fully... Um, I mean, it's a very calculated set of behaviors all the time. Right. Um, so we kind of jumped forward a little bit here to the end <laughs> of the story. Um, so tell us, I mean, so what happens between the, the virtuous Roman armies, even, the, even during the Second Punic War, like you said? I mean, the, the, the willingness, which seems almost insane to allow Scipio to form an army and take the offensive while Hannibal is still wandering around Italy. It was like, you've got, it'd be like having a, having an army in, um, you know, the Mexican army, if you will, in, uh, you know, Pennsylvania. And they're like, we're going to invade Guadalajara. You know, it's like, and so it's, it's this kind of virtue is that we're going to take risks and, and risk it all. And then something happens. Yeah, I think the remarkable thing there is you still have this, this strong consensus that we're going to do what it takes. Uh, and Rome had decided that the, the strategy to deal with Hannibal wasn't to confront Hannibal. Um, Hannibal had, in a sense, uh, learned from, well, he'd learned from commanders like Alexander the Great, where if you're facing an, a, numerically and, a numerically superior and um, resource-rich adversary, you want to break that down. You know, you want to force them to confront you. Um, and because if you have the confidence that you can win, you can basically overcome those advantages the other side has by destroying the confidence that people have that that side will win. And this is Alexander the Great's trick, and the Persians fell into it. And this is what Hannibal tried to repeat. And what the Romans realized is they really didn't, they really didn't need to defeat Hannibal in Italy. Um, and so they went after, they fought a world war while the enemy was in Italy. Right. Uh, they fought in Albania. They fought in Spain. They fought in North Africa. And eventually they had to pull Hannibal back because Carthage was losing everywhere else. Uh, and then Scipio defeats him outside of Carthage, and that's the end of the war. Um, but that is something that an autocracy really can't do. Um, there are moments where you see, I mean, the, the great example of when Rome does that again is in the 620s when the Emperor Heraclius invades Persia, despite the fact that they've lost the entire Roman East and there's a Persian army ready to besiege Constantinople. Um, but that happens in very specific reasons and it's framed effectively as a crusade. And so it takes a really exceptional amount of um, social cohesion to be able to pull something like that off. Uh, and in the Republic, you don't have an autocracy. This is consensual. 
Right. And that's what I think is so remarkable about Rome being willing to do that. They decided on this strategy and they followed this strategy for like 15 years. Mm. Um, and you can't get that unless you have a society that politically is functional enough to build and sustain consensus. Right. And then two generations later. Well, I think the two generations after Hannibal are so interesting um, because we, I think, only recently have really figured out what was going on there um, because Italy is is basically devastated. Uh, Rome has lost a huge amount of people. And so the entire social structure of the Republic changes. Um, people get married earlier. They have bigger families. There's all of this empty land. And so the bigger families kind of spread out across this land that has been depopulated by war. And for two generations, you have... Uh, something like what you have in the post-war period in Europe, where the, you have two generations that are rebuilding a state. Uh, and so there's lots of opportunity and people are getting, you know, families are growing, the population is rebounding, and everybody is richer than the generation that came before them. Uh, and then at a certain point, it stops. You know, at a certain point, Italy's full again. Um, and the family dynamics don't shift back to where they were before. You still have lots of children, but now those lots of children have less opportunities. Uh, and this happens at the same time that um, Rome has absorbed a lot of territories abroad and it's built out an administrative structure um, that is in a sense privatized government that works off of a model where there are financial instruments that are created. And so you have something where you have like a, a an analog almost of what we see in the United States in the 70s and 80s. Um, an era of opportunity for everybody ends at basically the same time that a financial revolution means the people who understand that new financial situ situation become very rich. Uh, and this is the great challenge that the Republic struggles to meet. Um, because what you have is a moment where uh, everybody's used to everyone getting wealthier. And now all of a sudden, a few people are getting much, much wealthier and everyone else is kind of stagnating. Um, and that's something that a republic struggles to deal with because it's very hard to find a consensus solution to that, um, especially when the people who are getting rich are getting rich legally. These aren't criminals. Right. Uh, and so if you work in a system that's governed by law, you can't take their money. Um, you aren't governed by law anymore. But if you're working in a system that's governed by kind of the common good and justice, you can't let that level of inequality survive either. Uh, and so how do you find a consensus solution that observes the legal rights of the people who are rich, but also observes the ideals of justice that make everyone inclined towards equality? And the Republic can't figure that out. That's what, I mean, I guess... Once again, it's difficult when you're reading, you know, the book to not make analogs to the modern day. And of course, it's always dangerous to tell people history doesn't repeat itself. Exactly. The human condition is what it is. Given the same set of circumstances, people tend to do the same dumb things. What you end up with, as you said, the people who are making the money, they're very happy to keep making all the money themselves. Yeah, there's no, there's no, and I guess some of that is that somewhere this this virtue stopped because they, they didn't say, you know, I don't need to have every single, you know, lira in my in my possession. I can 
just I can scale back what I'm doing, and let somebody else scale up a little bit. It's it's the constant. I've got to one up the guy next door, and we'll have the guy next door, and the people at the bottom, they don't know what to do, and of course that's that gives that then leads you open to the populist who whether he's Willie Stark or you know his real life equivalent of Huey Long from here in Louisiana, mm-hmm. you know, or any of those kind of people, they they have an opportunity to come in because the gap between the people at the bottom chasm that becomes created yeah i think that um i think the thing that is so toxic at that moment is um nate rosenstein at ohio state has done this great work where he's looked at what actually is going on with the families that are affected by this and what he's shown is you have lots of children being born and um in the period after the Second Punic War, they could all go out and get land because there's a lot of empty land because a lot of people have died and a lot of land has been taken from cities that rebelled against Rome. Um, but by 150, that land isn't there anymore. And so if you have lots of children, they don't go out and get more land. You have to divide your land among those children. And so you have children who are brought up at one level of prosperity who then have you know that level of prosperity cut into fifths. Right. As they all start their own family. Uh, and so they are they feel like they've lost something. And he and what Rosenstein says that I think is exactly right is the big problem isn't grinding poverty. I mean, that is there um, and it will it will always be there. But the people in grinding poverty on some level don't expect that they're going to do well. Um, it's this level of people whose parents did well. Mm. And then they don't have the same opportunities their parents did. Um, And I think this is, this is where you look and you can see like the 1970s and 1980s, you can understand the mentality. Of course, those are very different situations, Um, but you can understand the mentality where, um, I mean, there's this, one of my favorite studies is a study that compares the job opportunities for people who graduate college in 1980. Like what is your expected income? Um, for a college graduate in 1980. And Flint, Michigan has a higher expected income than San Francisco. Mm. And of course, now people right. tell that's, that's a, you know, that's, that <laughs> seems absurd almost. Right. Um, but what you see there is, uh, you know, it tells you a story about Flint, Michigan, but it also tells you a story about generational change. And if you're of a certain age um, in Flint, Michigan, you know, if you moved there in the 50s and you retired in the 80s, your children will not have the same level of opportunity and the same level of wealth they grew up in. And that actually is in some ways even more devastating than not having any expectations at all. Uh, and I think that's, the, that's where you start seeing the real problems um, is you have people who just expect a certain lifestyle and the state no longer has the capacity to provide the opportunities for you to have the lifestyle that you expect. Uh, and that's when people start getting angry. Um, I think the really interesting thing that we sometimes forget about in Roman elections is poor people don't win those elections. Right. Middle class people win those elections. Right. Uh, and upper middle class people, you, you cannot win anything in Rome. You cannot win any vote in Rome, even if you have 100% of the poor people backing you. Because this electoral system is structured so that um, people with some wealth uh, have more power, and it's by design. Uh, And so when you see these populists taking power, yeah, they're appealing to poor people, 
but they're also winning huge numbers of votes of relatively well-off people as well. Uh, and so that's why we have to, I think, explain it a little differently than maybe historians 60 or 80 years ago did. So um, this isn't the proletariat revolution. Right. That makes sense. I mean, which is why you didn't really have a proletariat revolution just about anywhere. It's like, you know, Russia had to, had to first create a, a proletariat after they after they created their uh, revolution in some ways. Yeah. Like you have, it's like, <laughs> so you get your the, the, the Gracky brothers. I mean, they just kind of it, it almost seems like. And I know this, this is something I get in history a lot. You're like, if you just cooled yourself just a little bit. You might have gotten something accomplished other than getting you yourself killed. <laughs> yeah, I think with Tiberius Gracchus, um, what you have is a reform that would have happened. Mm -hmm. It just wouldn't have happened with him as its author. And that was what he couldn't accept. Right. You know, it, it had to happen and it had to happen now because he needed it. Um, and that's where you see something very different from 140 years before, where uh, you know, the people in the 270s didn't behave that way. Um, if there was a reform, you would work to try to make it happen. And if you were in office when it happened, that was great. And if you weren't in office when it happened, you would continue to work until it happened. Um, and he didn't feel like he had the luxury to do that. Um, of all of the people in this, I think that that's one of the most disreputable. I think yeah. Tiberius Gracchus's decisions are really selfish mm -hmm. and really, really destructive. And they seem to almost be the ones that it's almost like his actions and then, of course, the reaction to him created – like that's what kind of what pushed the boulder mm -hmm. a little bit. I mean you know, it wasn't rolling downhill like it would go in the next century, but you're, it's, it's heading down because um, inevitably when you have that kind, of, that kind of reaction, the reactionaries shut down and say, no more reforms. Yeah, you get this idea of like reforms are bad because they lead to craziness like this. Well, the interesting thing is he gets his reforms, he gets killed, mm -hmm. and the reactionaries let the reforms stand mm -hmm. because the reforms weren't the issue. Right. Um, they would have eventually agreed to them, maybe not with him, <laughs> but with somebody. <laughs> uh, and and what their reaction really is uh, is to draw a line and say you can't behave this way anymore. Um, and I think that's where you really see that there's a level of anger that Tiberius Gracchus, who is an incredible orator, you know, he's an incredible performer, and he's really, really good at getting a crowd behind him and behind his ideas. Um, those are talents that he uses to build upon some really deep-seated resentment and anger about how the Republic has seen conditions for the last probably generation deteriorating for a lot of these people. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be doing anything. And Tiberius Gracchus is able to channel that into a movement that is more about the symbolism of doing something than actually changing things. Uh, and that's why I've, I think his actions are so destructive. Right. Um, because he doesn't actually, first of all, he doesn't actually accomplish very much, but he does a tremendous amount of damage. And his brother accomplishes a great deal. Um, and I think there you see something that's a little bit different. 
he does mobilize anger and he does mobilize resentment and he does mobilize a lot of people, but he actually has a lot of things he wants to get done with that energy. And Tiberius really doesn't. It's, it's about him and yeah. doing what he wants to do when he wants to do it. When politics become personal. Yeah. Very dangerous. Yeah. Very dangerous for Republic because once it becomes about the individual, it's no longer about the the idea or the common good that that brought us all together. But it's like it's no longer what's important is we do what's good for the Roman people. It's like we do what's good for the Roman people with my name on it. Right. Right. And this is why, I mean, Cicero in one of his great lines, he says, the republic belongs to the people. Um, and in Latin, that works really well, right? <laughs> res publica, res populi est, right? It's That's very right. concise. Um, and once you think the Republic belongs to you, you have problems. Uh, right. And again and again in the late Republic, you see people do that, where they say the Republic belongs to me. This is about me. Um, Tiberius Gracchus does it to a degree. Marius does it. Sulla does it. Um, you know, Caesar, to a degree, does it. Augustus certainly does it. Uh, and in each of these cases, y you are going against what a republic is supposed to be about. It doesn't belong to anybody. It belongs to everybody. Right. One of the things I know I'm going to let you go here for too much longer, but I wanted to – something I, I just, that just hit me as, as interesting because um, Cato is one of those fascinating characters in history that I – in some ways we don't get enough of him. I, I always laugh that the people we know the most about in the Roman Republic, unfortunately, became characters either on, in Shakespeare's play or in Spartacus, um, <laughs> the, the old uh, uh, – um, movie from the 1950s, uh, which incidentally was actually the movie that got me first interested in Roman history, which was funny because after I started reading Roman history, I'm like, now, now I have a hard time watching the movie. It's like, <laughs> did they actually read about Spartacus before they made this? It could be worse. You could read uh, the, the novel it's based on. That was painful. Ooh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ooh, I, can't, I can't recommend it. <laughs> but, um, but no, the, um, I think that what's, what's so, so interesting in um, – in all that is how, you know, as you said, the, the, the personal virtue goes by the wayside. And now we're left with who's going to take over and be this character who saves everything. Yeah. It becomes like, I'm the savior of Rome. I'm the savior of Rome. And then you get Cato who walks along and I, I laugh. I'm like, I swear to God, I could turn Cato into a Southern politician in a movie directed by one of the great, you know, by one of the great directors because he has that, you know, like, I'm a man of the people. I mean, you know, where his wife makes sure that she nurses the babies herself. No slave's going to suckle my babies. Only a real Roman, you know, <laughs> that kind of like, only a real Roman's like this. You know, you can almost see the, you know, freedom bird over his head or something. And, um, but and one, it's a fascinating character because you, you, at one level, you get this idea of Cato as this honorable man who chooses to stand by the Republic and I'm going to stand by what's right no matter what happens and all the way to the death. And there's that. But there's also the Cato who in some ways makes that end happen mm -hmm. because he is completely unable to not compromise his values – but to realize that he may have set his values even higher than actual Roman values. Yeah, and I think Cato is such a complicated figure because um, 
Cato does an excellent job of playing that role. And, and he's performing that mm-hmm. role. Um, when he makes these sort of principled stands, he does it so people see him making these principled stands. Uh, and that makes it really hard to get at what's actually driving him. Now, what we see in a lot of these politicians of the late Republic is they're committed to principles a lot of the time, but not all of the time. Right. And Cicero's commitment to you know the rule of law, except when it means he gets to do something to someone he doesn't like, is a perfect example of that. But Cato is too. I mean, Cato is particularly in, in 59, particularly or 60, particularly concerned that Caesar's going to win the consulship. And so he engages in electoral bribery. Now, what part of being a supporter of Republican virtue says that that's right. okay? Um, and Cato's excuse is, of course, to say, well, you know, I'm saving the Republic from Caesar, but you're violating the principles that you right. claim to uphold. Uh, and so I think this is why Cato is so complicated, because um, Cato does immense damage to the Republic in the, under the guise of saving the Republic from people that Cato decides are dangers to the Republic. Uh, and that, some of that is a misreading of those people. Um, you know, I think he misreads Pompey very significantly. And if he had read Pompey differently in the 60s, I don't think actually the Republic would have fallen, um, at least not immediately, <laughs> not right. when it did. Um, and, uh, and so I think Cato is such a complicated figure because I think in his mind, he is absolutely committed to the principles of, of preserving the Republic. Um, but sometimes the true uh, fidelity to those principles gets a little confused by the expediency of the moment. And, uh, you know, I, I think you've, you find very few people in the late Republic who you could look at and say, I think that this person does actually live by a set of principles and continues to do so for this entire period. Um, Br- Brutus is maybe the one. <laughs> <laughs> That all that always ends well, doesn't it? Well, I, I don't know. I, I might say Catiline always lived by his principles pretty steadily. I guess that's true, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you have no principles, <laughs> I I think it was. I'm trying to remember. It may have been um, Joseph Ellis, the American historian, who uh, was talking about how the uh, the founding fathers all kind of tried to live up to this idea of the Romans, you know, so, you know, John Adams is our Cicero and of course, George Washington is Cincinnatus. And he said, it seems like Aaron Burr was always trying out for the role of Catiline. <laughs> <laughs> which, which always, that, that always made me laugh is that, you know, the, uh, the, the character of Catiline. So, well, I were, we're kind of uh, going over what I, what I had uh, asked you to give, so I hate to take up too much more time here. But uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about your book or about the, uh, the, the mortal republic itself? Uh, I think that what I would say, um, and, and you've hinted at this, and we both hinted at this a lot, is um, history doesn't repeat itself. But history does provide us with tools to think about the present and imagine futures. And I think what the Roman Republic does is it gives us a set of ways to think about the dynamics of our moment. And it gives us a set of cautionary tales about how we can respond to things in these moments of tension. Um, Cicero and Cato and these other people who really do firmly believe that a republic is an ideal thing that needs to be maintained blinked 
occasionally. You know, 99% of the time they did behave according to those principles, but the 1% of the time that they blinked and didn't behave according to those principles were incredibly damaging. And that doesn't mean that the same thing will happen here. You know, we're not going to have a debtor's revolt that is led by (laughs) barbarian slaves. (laughs) Um, That won't happen. But we may well have a crisis where people who are committed to the free exercise of Republican values and processes in the United States blink and do something or agree to something or maintain something that goes against those principles. And if you work your entire life to maintain those principles, but you blink at a critical moment, you do more damage than all of the positive that you put together for all of the rest of the time you're active. Uh, And in a moment of crisis, it's really hard to see that. So I, I think the lesson that maybe comes away from the Roman story is we can't be complacent that our Republic is always going to be there. Um, republics do die. Uh, and they don't need to die. This is, this is another insight of Cicero's. They, they don't need to die. Um, but when they die, it's more tragic than something like a death of a person, because this is something that could live indefinitely. Um, but they don't die, they don't usually die, because one very evil person decides to kill them. They die because lots of people in moments of tension compromised their commitment to the basic values of law and justice and the common good that make a republic work. And it's essential for us to be sure that we uphold those values all the time, even if that means someone we don't like who's doing something that we don't like um, maybe gets protected by the courts uh, or by some sort of just process. Um, we need to we need to accept that the republic runs according to law, and we need to protect that. And I think everybody can learn from the Romans what happens when um, you let that slip even a little bit, even occasionally. That's really great. It really is. And uh, let me once again, folks, uh, recommend Mortal Republic by uh, Edward Watts. It's a wonderful book. I've actually read it three times since it's come out. So, um, And I read a lot of books, so I don't have time to read the same book more than once, but it really is, and uh, I really, really appreciate it. So before I let you go, I asked you to um, share with us because one of the problems that I always encounter as a person who loves history, my wife says when we first started dating, um, she was taking history here at the college where I work, and she said the thing that everyone says, and oh my God, history is so boring. And my response <laughs> is, no, 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 historians are boring. <laughs> history teachers are boring. Not all of them. Not all of them. There are some magnificent ones. But if you if you believe history is boring, you've been taught badly somewhere down the road. You probably had a, 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 a you know football coach who they stuck in the uh, history classroom <laughs> in high school or something. Um, and that's why I love books like your book. You don't need to know anything about Rome. I mean, if you don't know Rome existed, you might take a little bit of getting used to to get in the book. But then again. In that case, I'm not sure where you've lived. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, if you if, if you don't really know a lot about Rome, other than well, there's this Caesar guy, and there was this other guy, and I think I saw the show on HBO at one time. That's great. Pick up this book. You can read through it, and you don't really, you know, there's no um, there's no academic, um, uh, you know up in the clouds kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's scholarly, it's well-written, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's, not an, it's not an academic paper written by one scholar to other scholars to impress them with, uh, you know, just learning that has, that you're like, what is this? 
Uh, it's really very good, very well written um, that the common reader can do. So what, what other books are out there that folks should pick up if they want to know more about Rome, in addition to Moral Republic, which you should go out and buy right now? Oh, I mean, thank you, David. That means so much to me uh, that, that the book kind of succeeds in telling a story that's important in a way that's accessible. So I, I think that the the books that I love as this kind of thing that has a lot of meat to it, but also is accessible. Um, I think one of the best is Mary Beard's SPQR, which is a, a way of thinking about the development of Rome and, you know, Republic through the empire. Um, but it's, it's incredible. And she's very, very good. Um, and it's a very good book. Uh, a fun book is Barry Strauss's 10 Caesars which is a uh, set of biographies of Roman emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Um, and I like Barry Strauss's writing too. I think it's very accessible, but I love this way of packaging it uh, because it's the kind of thing that you can, you can pick up and put down when you want to and you jump into you know, the life I of really, whoever it is you want to approach. I really enjoyed that one too. Um, I think a book that's particularly timely right now is Kyle Harper's The Fate of Rome. Uh, and this is a book that looks at uh, environmental change and especially pandemics and diseases okay. <laughs> uh, as it affects um, the later Roman Empire. And so you you move through the second through more or less like the sixth century and you get exposed to um, the changing climate. You get exposed to uh, smallpox and Ebola and Black Death, and you can see how a society all the fun stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, what, what more could you want, right? right. Um, so I think that that's that's a fun one. Um, Josiah Osgood's Rome in the Making of a World State. This is a a short book, but it's one that gives you an overview of Roman history from about 150 BC to 20 AD. And the thing that's interesting about this is he's playing with the way we think about Roman time and Roman periods. Uh, and so you get this um, picture of Rome, not as something that changes dramatically once Augustus takes over, but instead he says that you basically you still have something that is a unit that is joining the late Republic and the reigns of Augustus and Tiberius. Uh, and so it's a, and it's accessible, but it gives you an interesting way to think mm -hmm. about change. Um, and he, he's an excellent writer. So it's, it's fun to read. Um, there are a few other ones that, you know, since I have, only five. <laughs> um, I'll, oh, you, I'll, you can share as many as you want. I just didn't want to put too many on you there. <laughs> I'll throw a couple out there that I like for different reasons. Um, Peter Brown's Through the Eye of a Needle is a great way to think about wealth and the way that Christianity uh, deals with wealth. And also the story that we've traditionally told about when Rome is wealthiest. Um, because what, he's, what he shows is it's actually the fourth century. Hmm. Um, Rome is incredibly wealthy in the fourth century. And that's why you have all of this early Christian discussion of wealth, because um, this is a time when there's a lot of it. Uh, and what does it mean to be both Christian and wealthy? And he goes through, you know, greatest hits of all of the authors of the early church, uh, lots of Augustine. Right. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful book to give you a, a perspective that we don't normally have. Uh, and it really challenges the way we think about things. Um, and then Catherine Nixie's A Darkening Age is a great way to look at the end of paganism. Um, okay. And she's, uh, she was trained as a classicist, but she's a journalist. And so the writing moves very quickly. It's very efficient. Um, but she's really well grounded in the material and she knows her evidence really well. Uh, and so I think that's another fun, well, not fun, right? 
<laughs> the destruction of paganism maybe isn't fun, but it's it's a very good read. Excellent, excellent. Well, definitely some books I'll I'll be checking out as well here. So, uh, well, Edward, thanks so much for your time and uh, for sharing all this with us. And love to have you back on again sometime. Talk some more Rome. Maybe we can talk some uh, some late empire because I know that's something people don't know a lot about. Um, we we use the word Byzantine, but we have no idea what it actually means. I would so, love that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so this is also a podcast that talks about. Uh, cultural stuff we'll have to talk sometime about uh romans in film oh because that's a, that'll be that, that's a fun topic yeah it's it probably we know more of more wrong things about rome than anything <laughs> else and we can blame a lot of filmmakers for that <laughs> We can hate watch Gladiator together. <laughs> oh yes, definitely, definitely. There's, uh, <laughs> I'm sure people will send, will send me hate over that because I know folks love Gladiator, but you know, um, I think there are some great moments in it. Uh, you know, we've we've all we've all used the uh, "How are you not entertained?" <laughs> so, it's a professor's favorite. <laughs> exactly. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I will talk to you later. That's wonderful. Thank you, David. Thanks so much to Dr. Edward Watts for coming on the show today talking about his wonderful book, The Mortal Republic. You can find links to his book and the other books we talked about in the show notes below. You will be able to find my book review of Mortal Republic over at our website, historia.substack.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star rating. Share the podcast with all your friends. This has been your host, David Williams. I look forward to seeing you next time.